In this episode of the Constructing Differences podcast, I'm interviewing Seb Che. Seb Che is a designer currently living in Charleston, South Carolina. Che currently serves as the Associate Director at Joel Sanders Architect and oversees mixed design and inclusive design branch of JSA. So just to get us started, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about yourself, your work, and anything you'd like to share. Sure. So my name is Seb Che. I use they, them pronouns. I'm based in Charleston, South Carolina at the moment. I'm the Associate Director of JSA slash Mixed Design. JSA stands for Joel Sanders Architect, which is a full-service architecture firm based in New York City, specializing in academic arts and residential projects, but specifically working with university campuses most often and museums. And then Mixed Design is a branch of our office which is the think tank and design consultancy dedicated to inclusive design and thinking about making a wide range of building types from restrooms to museums, to hospitals and clinics, to workplaces more accessible and welcoming for a wide range of embodied individuals across age, gender, racial, cultural identity, ability, et cetera, religion also as well. Um, on the topic of religion, I'm facilitating a project right now, um, thinking about an interfaith space on a university campus for a deaf student body, which is very interesting. And I think that is a good example of how mixed design starts to think intersectionally and as to resist certain aspects of the architectural discipline that sometimes silos users and audiences into certain boxes and could do a better job of thinking about how we as embodied individuals oftentimes are constituted by a variety of interconnecting identities. So in this example, you know, you can be deaf and a Muslim and that affects how you use space compared to uh, a hearing, you know, secular person um, that changes, you know, what spatial requirements you need. So I think what mixed design does well in terms of thinking about these issues is really looking outside of architectural expertise and being dedicated to interdisciplinary collaborations with um, public health experts and experts in trans studies and disability studies and all the disciplines that you're interested in for your project. Um, and as Mixed Design's Associate Director, I'm oftentimes overseeing a variety of different initiatives between research as well as our office acting as a consultancy and working with real clients on projects that both new construction and retrofit and sometimes just giving advice to think about how we can translate some of this research into the real world in terms of expanding access um, for different buildings and spaces. Sometimes this is um, widely applicable as our stalled initiative, which was kind of the origin of mixed design. So the stalled initiative, which was launched in 2015, which was really what I kind of sunk my teeth into when starting to work here was dedicated to inclusive restroom design, right? And in that case, the prototypes and recommendations that we are creating and the research that we are disseminating is broadly applicable. And that was really the goal was to reach uh, different communities, both in the design community as well as beyond to think about, hey, there are other ways to conceive of what we take for granted in terms of the sex segregated restroom, the male female typology is relatively a recent invention and that we can look at the historical and cultural dimensions of this issue to liberate ourselves as designers to think outside the box, learn from trans studies, think about 
non-binary identities that don't fall neatly into two categories and think about space as something that can facilitate uh, an equal experience for people just needing to take care of their bodies to go use the restroom. So I feel like in that case, we're interested in research that can be useful to broad audiences across many different projects. You know, we'll give these talks both in the US and internationally, and then hopefully people uh, kind of take that and run with it and apply it to real projects. And sometimes they bring us in for those projects, sometimes they don't. Um, but either way, I think there's that kind of element of thought leadership there, but um, and amplifying the many, many people that have been speaking out about this issue from the trans community and many other communities as well, since what was important with Stalled is we looked beyond just thinking about trans and non-binary identity. You know, I'm a trans non-binary person and restrooms don't work for me, but there are also many people where the restroom doesn't work for them. So we were trying to think about okay, let's think about every single person and every single encounter in a restroom that doesn't work for you. And let's think about how design can mitigate for that. So hopefully that means that there's a ripple effect to amplify the discourse that's been happening in the trans community and the disability community and the Muslim community in the uh, chronic illness community that people have been demanding for a very, very long time. And let's try to leverage this moment to think about space in a more expansive way. So that's part of our work that um, that I think is useful of bridging the gap between kind of research and practice. Um, yeah, that's, that's a little summary. That's really great. Um, I was wondering if you could talk really more specifically about um, the specific spaces that you're designing for these restrooms or for these religious spaces and how they differ from the traditional churches that we have seen that aren't designed for disability. Hmm. So specifically speaking, I don't know how much I can share about this project since it's in progress right now, but in general, the space that I was commenting on earlier is thinking about an interfaith space, which is also sometimes called a multi-faith space. Um, this, I feel like really you will be most familiar with in terms of thinking about like an airport or hospital chapel, you know, they're often called, they're kind of spaces that are stripped of religious iconography. So they'll be non-offensive and people of many different faiths can use uh, this grid zone for whatever it might be that they want to do, whether that's prayer or meditation or contemplation, etc. But in the case of um, our collaboration with Gallaudet University, which is a school for the deaf based in Washington, DC, there we want to learn from, you know, what Gallaudet is famous for, which is their deaf space principles and thinking about how architecture can be designed in a way that facilitates the deaf experience, specifically the use of sign language, but also many other aspects of the deaf experience that can be accommodated for and designed for in the use of materials, paint colors, lighting, spatial sequencing, et cetera. And speaking of Gallaudet, a prototype that we have on our website is the restrooms that we were designing for them in their field house, which is an athletic facility. And we're currently working with them on a restroom project as well in their student center. So in that case, you also have the kind of stacked identities that you're thinking about. You're thinking about designing for deaf accessibility, but also uh, inclusive restroom experiences for a wide range of people. Um, so I, I think that works well as like a real world example of where we're thinking about a concrete space that's, you know, not a glamorous space. It's just your typical 
male female restrooms it's just your typical kind of interfaith chapel space um, but working within footprints and within a certain scope of work to think about okay what are the different scales of intervention that can happen here to expand access uh, to a wider audience and just want to make it very clear that for projects like this it's never just design alone you know there's a lot of work to be done within uh, the client side of things in this case a university client and in terms of when you're thinking about access and making a place feel welcoming to a student body and faculty and staff, it's more than just the architecture itself, right? It's about all of the kind of swirling factors that govern the usage of that space, including open hours of a building, how security is staffed, uh, the language that's used in emails that goes to students, the amount of surveying that had been done in the past. I think real projects like that are near and dear to our heart at JSA Mixed Design because it allows us to kind of dive into that complexity, but also give us uh, lots of constraints to work within. Another example of a project that I'm working on with Mixed Design is at the Queens Museum in New York. And we secured a federal grant from the Institute of Museum and Library Services to work with the Queens Museum over two years to reimagine the public facing spaces of their building to be more accessible and welcoming to the diverse visitorship that visits Queens Museum. You know, Queens is the most diverse locale in the world. So you have very, very rich cultural communities that are coming to use the museum for not just visiting exhibitions, but also a wide range of exciting programs. You know, right now during the pandemic, the Queens Museum operates a food pantry as well as a vaccine site or I think a COVID testing site, actually not a vaccine site. Um, and of course, with such a diverse community with immigrants from all over the world, you have a wide range of languages that are spoken and thinking about language justice and a multilingual audience, how mm -hmm. can architecture be as intuitive and welcoming as possible to people that one might not into a museum like Queens Museum before, and two might be coming there to access programs besides just, you know, going to see the show that's on display. So there, you know, we have a specific audience in the way that at Gallaudet there's a specific audience. And I think that's what's exciting about um, projects in that they're extremely site specific. And while you want to design for everyone, there are also priorities and uh, kind of realistic audiences that we're thinking about, right? Like that's, I think, the difference between this kind of approach and universal design, which might try to check every single box for every single category, which might help you fulfill regulatory guidelines in terms of uh, ramps for wheelchair users, which is fantastic, um, but there are many, many other users that need to be considered. So that's why I think a really important part of the process is sitting down with um, the client or you know, whoever is managing a certain site to understand who that audience is and what their needs are before getting into design before getting into a participatory design practice or a co-design practice, before you just get dropped in there and know what's been done already and know what conversations have been had. Mm -hmm. I'm really interested in the ways that you all work site specifically and also individually with the people, with your clients um, and also as a firm. You mentioned earlier the idea of the retrofit and the broadly applicable ideas that are pursued in research. I was wondering, um, if you could expand more on the retrofit, because that's something that I know Jay Dolmich has spoken about in terms of like disability theory and also the ways you mitigate and prioritize like um, almost corporate architecture versus the individual like more research-based uh, modes of working. 
Hmm. Yeah, I think it's a sophisticated question. Like in addition to what you brought up, you know, Amy Hamray talks about techno science and how people in the disability community have historically been hacking spaces in order to make them work for them. And Amy, I think, has a very sophisticated view on that in terms of not kind of flattening that and not over glorifying that and being more nuanced in terms of what is done out of necessity versus kind of ingenuity. And of course, there's overlap between the two. But I think the difference about retrofit when you're an individual doing that in your own home or out in urban space, you know, like I've loved, I love, love, love seeing when people, you know, uh, strap foam to their backs and then lay on hostile architecture to make a bench that was designed to ward off um, people experiencing houselessness to uh, just making it work for you. So I love like mods and hacks like that. Mm -hmm. But when we're talking about retrofit at the scale of a restroom at a university, for example, it's a different kind of conversation because one, there's the kind of battle that needs to be won for leadership signing off on something like this, which oftentimes requires a lot of uh, demand from the academic community. You know, students have to protest and write letters to the dean for years before they even start to consider this. And then once they consider it, um, the budget that they've apportioned might be super, super slim. So they might say, hey, you know, go ahead and change the signs, but we can't afford to do any like architecture here. When you're working with old historic buildings with um, aging plumbing infrastructure, if the plumbing chase or the stack or the risers, whatever you want to call them, that carries all the plumbing infrastructure is in that wall that divides the male and female restroom, it's not so easy just to kind of swipe that binary wall away and make it one open space. You know, there might be ways to keep that wall there and make the restroom more inclusive than it is right now by addressing rest, the urinals or partition heights or signage um, or its kind of openness to the corridor. But I think those are the types of things that come to play when it's for retrofits. It's like, okay, how serious are we here? What's the buy-in? What's the budget? And how large of a transformation is a client you know, willing to undertake? You touched on your education. Um, what was your architecture edu education like and how did you come across this interest in this field and kind of coming into working in mixed design? Yeah, that's a great question. So I received my Bachelor of Arts in Architecture from Barnard College and Columbia University's Department of Architecture. I graduated from Columbia as an undergraduate in 2017. Um, and that department was chaired then as is now by Karen Fairbanks, who's you know, a fantastic individual and really, I think, forged alliances within the department as well as outside the department to provide a very holistic experience for us as undergraduates that also really prioritized issues of social justice or at least made that a very present option if that was something you were interested in. You know, the department did a really great job of making multiple kind of access points for the cultivation of different interests. So if you were interested, you know, in fabrication and design, if you were interested in sustainable development and, you know, green design, or if you're interested in public interest design or, um, or these types of issues, you know, I think that was really nurtured there. Um, I know since I've graduated, they've had us come in to talk about stalled. Um, I think when I was there, there wasn't as much of a interest in disability studies, but I think that's blossoming now. Um, there was also um, 
I feel like opportunity for people to do exactly what you're doing in terms of independent studies, where if you're really passionate about something, like you can go take classes, you know, at GSAP and do your own project and secure your own funding and go on research trips. So I think I was, I really benefited from that department in these ways. Um, and I feel like it also really encouraged or not encouraged, but really um, was open to not entering traditional professional trend in architecture. And they were very upfront with us and would say, you know, half of our graduates end up going down the traditional architecture track and half of them don't. And I think part of that is because it's not a professional degree, but also part of it is that I feel like they're very open to people developing non-traditional practices and research or um, activism or adjacent fields and art and design that aren't traditional architecture. And the kind of relationship with GSAP, I think, reflects that in terms of highlighting funds of kind of scholarly uh, research, academic, architectural writing and history and theory. So I feel like there were all these kind of pathways open that when I graduated made me feel like, oh, traditional architecture isn't the only way that I have to go. So when I was graduating, I was really looking for work that would allow me to expand that research interest. I was also at the time also organizing and working in prison abolition. I was interested in popular education, restorative and transformative justice, as well as, um, you know, being a gadfly on with different campus groups for uh, different goals. So I feel like I already had that activism seed in me and I was doing that kind of independently from architecture. Although like there was a, an amazing project at Rikers Island, which kind of bridged those worlds, which I could speak about if interested. But at that point I was kind of looking to nurture both worlds. So I learned about Stalled. I saw a talk by Joel Sanders on campus about Stalled and um, we linked up. And I think he was excited to meet a non-binary, you know, young designer that was interested in these issues. And I was interested in developing Stalled. So it was a natural fit from there. So I started working with JSA Mixed Design pretty much right after graduating. You touched on this a little bit in your experiences in college about the communities and also groups and networks that you support. But I was wondering about now, like how have those causes and that activism work progressed and changed, um, mm -hmm. especially within the past year? Yeah, I think my interests have kind of started to um, get a bit more pinpointed into what I'm really passionate about. So locally here in Charleston, I organize with a campaign dedicated to environmental justice and thinking about housing justice. And I feel like those are two worlds that I really am interested in uh, developing as well as I organize work with groups thinking about popular education as well as expanding access to resources for like women, trans and non-binary people. So these show up kind of in different ways. You know, I run an electronic music collective here, which offers um, kind of free workshops and performance opportunities and just safe spaces for women, trans and non-binary people interested in learning DJ skills and electronic music. The environmental justice campaign I organize with here called Friends of Gadsden Creek really looks at the architectural history of a formerly racially segregated public housing complex here and opposes a gentrification plan that's being pushed by the city. So that's really kind of grassroots activism um, at the local level. And then I think kind of generally, I'm also interested in land sovereignty, land justice and food justice and like opposition to food apartheid. So in that, I feel like I'm always kind of doing my independent research on 
real estate activism and alternatives to speculative development. And this shows up in my um, writing sometimes. I'll like do an essay on that. And I'm also interested in radical forms of cooperative ownership of land um, and governance of land. So I'm part of a co-op um, fund that we're actively kind of asking these questions. So I feel like for me, it's really important to continue uh, doing things outside of, uh, of architecture. But of course, I feel like they're interrelated, at least for me. There's usually a thread uh, tying through all of them and it's usually kind of space and an insurgent usage of space. And as a concluding question, I was wondering what you are looking forward to in the future of your field and in the future of your work. Hmm. I feel like I'm looking forward to like more people like you doing these independent projects and there being more than that, you know, small network of people that, you know, we were name dropping at the beginning of this call and that becomes the majority, you know, I would love to see that. Um, I feel like there's a strong shift in our generation of really turning away from the architect model. And I feel like I was kind of at that transition where there were definitely people in my graduating class that when we were like sophomores were kind of fetishizing uh, certain architects and certain approaches to form. But I feel like by the time we graduated, everyone had kind of moved on from that model and was very disillusioned with that. And I feel like the, also the tradition of architecture outside of you know the Ivy League and kind of elite like institutions has, all, has been past that for a very, very long time. So I feel like it's just us that are catching up that are kind of sometimes in the navel gazing research world um, or academic world. Um, I'll probably get some heat for saying that, but <laughs> I'm excited for everyone to look more locally in terms of what can be done that might not have the sexiest uh, rendering or kind of speculative um, manifesto tied to it, but is really just about, you know, putting your money where your mouth is, whether that's just practicing as architect yourself and taking on humble projects that allow you to make a living and then you know organizing for justice in your off time um, or finding ways to kind of loop in research skills and speculative drawing skills to projects that can directly um, benefit what marginalized communities are demanding. So I feel like that's the future that I'm really excited about and I'm excited to see uh, just yeah more hacking more kind of low budget imaginative uh, usages of space. That's really great. And that was really well put. Well, thank you so much for your time. And I'm really glad I got to speak with you today. Thank you for listening to an episode of the Constructing Differences podcast. To find out more about this project, visit representationsofdifference.com or at representationsofdifference on Instagram. Special thanks to Jan Deirdrich for helping me through the IRB approval process, Dr. Olwan for provoking my thoughts on solidarity, and Professor Lori Brown for being my mentor on this project and so many others. Finally, thank you to all the participants who agreed to speak with me on Zoom throughout the month of April. Your time, words, and thoughts were greatly appreciated. Mm -hmm.